He knows his stuff and sure enough it's shooting the bull with Tom Snow. So welcome to another episode of Shooting the Bull with Tom Snow. My name's Tom Snow. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, my former colleague at two different jobs, Mary McGinley. Mary, how are you? I'm great, Tom. How are you today? Not too bad. So just get so all my uh, few listeners have some background. So you and I worked together at two jobs, but uh, Betsy Ross House and Historic Germantown. Mm-hmm. Today, we're going to be focusing on one of those, the Betsy Ross House. So I was a visitor service slash tour guide there for about five years, and I, I still do it once in a while. Um, uh, Mary, on the other hand, was a Betsy Ross first person interpreter, and which basically means she portrays Betsy Ross. She's a Betsy Ross reenactor. Is that a good way to say it? Um, well, some first person interpreters resent the term reenactor as they think that implies more of like a hobbyist thing. Um, but I think it's a good enough description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know um, you portray the, we have three Betsy Ross reenactors. We have one who, who plays Betsy Ross as uh, someone in her 40s or 50s or 60s, um, elderly to middle-aged. And the person who portrays that, she's been there for about 15, 20 years, and she does a great job. Um, the second one plays Betsy in her late 20s. Um, and the person who does that, she's been there since I've been there five years ago. Mary portrayed young Betsy. So Betsy, 24, 25? Yep. And she was the third, I was there for five years. You were the third person to have that position. And since <laughs> then, the fourth. Yeah, the young one, I feel like always has a turnover because I'm sure the younger Betsy is just, they find a full-time job or whatever. Well, and it's a more limited scope of what you can talk about. So I think that gets more um, exhaustive faster. That's one of the many things there that get exhaustive. Yeah, yeah that's true. So let's get to the first question. What, what got you into being a Betsy Ross interpreter? Well, I got into uh, historic interpretation my junior year of college. I interned over the summer at Colonial Williamsburg Foundation in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I'd always been going there on family vacations for years and it was a life goal of mine to be an interpreter. Um, So it was really great internship. I was a wig maker and um, also did site interpretation of one of the domestic sites there. Um, So after getting that experience, um, I kind of felt like, oh, I've, you know, I've done it now, like, let me try something else. And then I graduated college and nothing else was interesting or enjoyable. So um, when I moved to Philadelphia, I thought what better place to get back into history and education. Um, So I started with HPI, Historic Philadelphia Incorporated, as a storyteller, which is our third person interpretation, meaning you tell the story from a third person point of view. Um, And after working there for a year in that capacity, uh, I moved into the Betsy Ross position after um, the girl who had it before me was leaving and 
So I auditioned um, and got it. So I guess a promotion of sorts. There you go. Uh, yeah, so a first person interpreter uh, is someone that basically tells the story through a first person point of view, correct? Yeah, so you're embodying a person from history and telling everything as if you were them. And a third person interpreter is someone who's like a tour guide be an example of a third person interpreter? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. okay. I was actually a costumed third person interpreter. Um, I want to say it's right, I want to say it's right after college. It was at a place called the Colonial Plantation. I had to dress up as a colonial person. Mm. I, I taught kids out of uh, saw wood and luckily no one cut their hands off. So that was, that was a <laughs> oh, success. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah. yeah. I think there's one time I had to whip out a first aid kit. I forget what it was. Um, oh, dear. But, yeah, I think it was some, I think some kid got stung by a bee. So it wasn't even my fault. Oh, but um, I, I, I digress. So... <laughs> You start out as a an, an an internship in Williamsburg, and then you get your job historic Philadelphia as a third person interpreter, so a storyteller, mm -hmm. um, and then you become the first person Betsy Ross interpreter in was it August twenty eighteen? Um. Yes. Well, my first like full weekend was Labor Day. Um, but I started training over that summer. So starting in July, I started training. Okay. That leads us to our next question is what kind of training or prep work did you have to do in the beginning? Well, the Betsy training or the being Betsy binder, as it's called, is uh, very intensive. So as you mentioned, um, the lady who has been there for several years, Carol, is a uh, has taken years to compile this really thorough training system. Um, so you get a huge binder full of more information than you ever thought you would want to know about someone who we actually know very little about <laughs> in history. Um, but it's really gives you the context um, of flags, everything you want to know about flags, upholstery. So Betsy is an upholsterer. And so you have to learn to sew. That's a huge part of the training. I didn't know um, much sewing. I mean, I had done like basic stuff, but certainly was not a primary skill or hobby of mine. So uh, that was a big change. You have to learn how to cut a star. That's one of the most important parts of our job. Um, Betsy's famous for making the five-pointed star with just one snip of her scissors. And so part of the training with that is you have to make 75 stars. Wow. I think it was 75. Yeah. And you use them with like the paper ones or just the... Um... With paper. And then okay. you have to show them to Carol. And then you have to show her how you would say it when you were presenting it to someone? How would you teach someone to cut a star? Um, you also have to read the book or not the whole book, but sections that pertain to you in, um, what's that woman's name? Martha me? Miller? The Marla. Marla Miller. Miller. Book of um, Betsy Ross, The Making of America, which is pretty much the like quintessential book on Betsy. And um, 
You have to know a lot about fabrics, all the tools in the upholstery shop. You have to take a 30 fabric sample test and be able to identify what fiber is in it, what the weave of the cloth is. Um, so lots of, lots of details uh, go into it. I'm sure I'm missing some, but by the end of it, you have to write up a three minute Betsy performance. And that becomes your core of what you say to visitors. And from there, you need to be able to expand it, of course, or make it even quicker if you need to. But generally, you have that three-minute backbone to fall on, especially good for when you have large tour groups coming in. That's good. Yeah, I was going to say, um, first of all, uh, Carol, who portrays um, Betsy Ross in her elderly stage, um, She's great. I, I definitely want to have her on for a future episode. She's been doing this for, I think she last, she told me it was 17 years, but I'm, it's probably been more since then. Um, yeah, I, I know she's a hard taskmaster. I know she has high expectations. Um, she not, does. <laughs> not to brag, I actually cut a star and she said it was almost, it's probably just as good as some of the Betsy stars. So wow, well, look at I, that. I, I got to give myself a shout out. You do, uh, you do. That's big. Uh, so you said you knew a little bit about sewing and all that um, before you did the Betsy Ross reenactor? Yeah, a little. I actually had sewn my own haversack when I was in Williamsburg, which I then used as Betsy um, to carry all my stuff in. Um, as someone who's not very familiar with like historic sewing, um, I know you and a couple other co-workers of mine are not going to be happy with me for not knowing this. Uh, is there a difference between like what you do and embroidery? Yes, so embroidery is putting like patterns onto fabrics. Um, so it's almost a, it's like a textured effect. So when you like sew a flower onto something to raises it. So it's threads coming through an existent woven thing. Whereas a, a sewing is more like utilitarian so you're making stitches that put pieces of fabric together, essentially. Do you do, did you do any embroidery for as the Betsy Ross reenactor or Betsy Ross no. interpreter? So Betsy doesn't embroider and she doesn't weave. Um, so she's she's doing basic sewing um, in order to make furniture and home goods. And also, um, I just remembered. So you use the term upholster, which was Betsy Ross's occupation. Can you just explain what an upholsterer is for our, vis our listeners that might not know that term? Yeah, so upholstery means I make anything for the house um, that requires fine stitching. So for Betsy as a woman, that's going to be uh, window curtains, bed hangings, mattresses, pillows, um, chair covers, even things like Venetian blinds. Um, she would stitch the taping together that holds the wooden slats, um, tablecloths. Um, so anything that makes a home more beautiful and comfortable would be the job of an upholsterer. Male upholsterers would make the structural work like stuffed chairs and sofas and things. Was um, upholstery back then, I remember vaguely reading this in the Martha Miller, Marla Miller book, was that more of a male-dominated profession or a uh, female-dominated pr uh, profession? 
Um, I think it's pretty split because the work tends to be separate, what the men do from the women. Um, you want the women for the fine stitch work. So you do find quite a number of female upholsters, I believe, but I'm not quite sure what the exact percentages are. Because one of the unique things you mentioned about Betsy Ross is we actually don't know a lot about her. And what we do know is kind of deep in, it's kind of surrounded with myths and legends. Mm -hmm. For example, um, a lot, we don't know for a fact that she made the first flag. And it's almost kind of like one thing that I kind of realized when I first started working there is that a lot of people think it's some kind of terrible conspiracy theory that we're telling all these people Betsy Ross made the flag. She probably did it. It's probably hocus pocus. Yes, that is for sure. I actually had a, a history professor in grad school tell me you're making money off lies, which I oh, thought was, was a bit um, a bit extreme. Yeah, I had my a coworker at my new job who uh, it came up that I worked there, and he's like, "It's amazing because it's just all fake." And I was like, "That's not all fake. She was real, and she did make flags." I, I, I this is a little fun tidbit. When I was actually my first year doing field trips, I asked the students, "What do you guys know about Betsy Ross?" And one of the chaperones, dead serious, wasn't joking, said, "Did she make the bridge?" And I was like, "Wow." No. <laughs> yes i am a structural engineer there you go <laughs> ahead of my time can probably make a lot of money doing that probably more than flag <laughs> yeah. making wouldn't have had to get married three times <laughs> um so i guess what we do know about betsy is um she was a flag maker in the revolutionary war um the legend the quote-unquote legend or fact whatever it might be was that george washington George Ross and Robert Morris mm -hmm. asked her to make the first stars and stripe flags. And Betsy Ross told George Washington to make a five-pointed star instead of a six. Is that correct? correct. Mm -hmm. And also make the stars in a circle. Yes. Well, she suggested uh, to have them organized in some fashion, either lines or a shape. Excellent. Um, and I guess I worked here. For, uh, I worked for five years. I don't know why I'm blanking on it like this. I think her grandson or her great grandson was the first person to um, express this story. Yes, in the 1860s. Uh, yeah, right for the Civil War, and I think it was during that time we're trying. To, the United States was looking for an, a national identity. And before the revolution, before the Civil War, flags were really just like military symbols. Uh, it, it's so, Betsy Ross probably saw sewing the first flag as the equivalent of making the first tent for the army or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't have actually been uh, significant in any way. It's uh, the way I interpreted it was that it's a good business opportunity. She's in the business of a luxury trade and in the middle of the war, most people are not buying upholstery. The taxation on fabric and all sorts of things is only going up. And so, you know, she's a widow. She needs to provide for herself. The opportunity to get work uh, making war items is useful to her pocket as well as to her patriotic beliefs. Um. Couple things I want to point, I want to hit on to with that. Um, 
So you said patriotic beliefs. You said, she, was she a patriot then? I, I take it she was because she, first of all, I worked there. And second of all, because she did uh, make the first American flag. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, I guess it kind of comes from the story, but because she did become a flag maker, we know she made the the pure fact we have is that by 1777, Betsy was making flags for the Navy. Um, the Continental Navy or the, the Continental Navy? Okay, because I know there. She also made some for the Pennsylvania Navy. So there, there was a Continental Navy, um, a small, tiny Continental Navy that didn't do too well, and then a Pennsylvania State Navy that was only responsible for like defending the Delaware River. It, mm. Well, uh, it was from the order of the Congress. So. I think it must have been the Continental Navy. I mean, it was Continental. Um, so we had the receipt from that. Why was she a patriot? Is Because one thing I forgot to mention is that she was a Quaker. Why would a Quaker become a patriot? Like what, was it just because of taxation on her goods? Or is there anything else that made her a patriot? So I don't have an exact... Um record of that but uh her husband john ross was a patriot he was part of the militia and um so i kind of ex so a lot of what betsy interpretation is is extrapolation honestly and i kind of presumed given the fact that she had the nerve enough to intermarry or marry interreligiously um, John Ross was not Quaker, and she was actually kicked out of the Quaker meeting house Ouch. for her marriage. Um, yeah, so I don't get the impression then that she was a pretty strict Quaker. Um, she obviously sought different lifestyles, and by her later years, she became a free Quaker, which was a branch of the Quakers who broke off because they were in support of independence. Um, they only existed in Philadelphia for that short time. So needless to say, we have very clear actions later in her life that make it obvious that that's her opinion. Now, why she was a patriot, I imagine John Ross's opinions had a great influence on her. I would think a lot of it has to do with business. Um, at that time, you couldn't really weave a lot of cloth in uh, the colonies. And so the material is really what makes upholstery so expensive, even more so than the, uh, the sewing that goes into it. So if you were able to break free from England and then you could have more American cloth producers, more people would be able to afford the cloth and thus be able to afford upholstery, which would make her business better. Um, I think that's a reasonable idea. Um, I, that's always kind of what I went off of as a business transaction. Sure. And that makes sense is because especially with Brit high British taxes and tariffs and whatnot, yet a, an independent United States was good, good for business for the whole country. A lot of these patriots, both rich, middle class, and probably even lower class, a lot of it were doing it, a lot of them were fighting for independence out of self-interest. Yeah. Totally. Um, as most people do. And fighting for uh, not independence for self-interest. Exactly, yeah. Especially if you're an enslaved African servant um, fighting, because the British actually offered, side note, Br the British actually offered 
freedom to enslaved servants who fought for the British, assuming they won the war. Once the, uh, and we talked about this at historic Germantown, which we also, we can go into a little bit. Um, once the British lost the war, I think a few of them did hold their promise and took them back to England with them. But a lot of these enslaved servants actually ended up becoming slaves again and probably treated fairly badly. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, back to John Ross. So you betrayed Betsy Ross when she was married to her first husband. Was that right? So right after he dies. So I'm a widow after my first husband. Do we know how he passed away? We don't. There's lots of theories. Um, so you'll, if you go to the Betsy Ross house, you will see a sign that says he died in the, in the militia. Um, that's not really proven. There's actually a prevailing theory that he even potentially committed suicide. Um, I did, yeah. Yeah, that he actually was very mentally ill and his mother was mentally ill. And I mean, I, I know he is allegedly buried in the Christ Church burial ground near the, with Ben Franklin. Um, so right. he um, died but... relatively young, 24, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And back then, if you're widow at 24, you're kind of expected to marry at least one other time. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Remarriage was very typical for men and women. Widows, widowers. Yeah, for sure. I know, yeah. Martha, um, Martha Washington had, actually had two. George is her second husband. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know there's a lot of famous people who, Benjamin Chu, who was another famous Philadelphian. He was married at least twice. Charles Wilson Peel, famous painter, was married three times. So Betsy Ross, marrying three people actually was very common back then. Very common, but I think one of the things that amazed me as an interpreter was how that was a fact of her life that visitors really latched onto as this like thing to mock and like, you know, oh, Betsy, like you really get around or like, oh, you're some black widow. Thing. I know someone, someone asked me, um, which one of your, her three husbands was her favorite. And um, right. I was like, I do not know. So Betsy Ross's um, grave site was actually in the courtyard. If you remember the Betsy Ross house. And I was so tempted just to point to the grave site and say, I don't know, why don't you go over there and ask her? Um, I didn't yeah. I mean, have the courage to do that. It's but yeah, that tempting was, to say things like that. That, it, that was one thing that I didn't get. I think maybe because people just are either A, immature, or B, just don't understand that most people were married more than once back then. It was very common. Yeah, and I think they lack an understanding of a woman's position in the 18th century. I mean, if you weren't wealthy, what you really needed, you had no rights. I mean, as a widow, you have slightly more. You can have property. Betsy Ross was able to be your own business owner because she was a widow. Um, but, you know, John Ross wasn't rich. He didn't leave her very much. And so that only lasts a while. And besides, as also like Many people want to start a family, and if you would like to have children, you need to have a husband. Yes, there you I go. Told people. Um, so what? Ha- well, let's talk about her other two husbands real quick. I know that's something you probably didn't talk about when you were portraying her, 
But I think we both know that she didn't marry a mariner, a guy named Joseph Ashburn. Mm-hmm. And our friend and colleague, Jen Gray, is the one that portrays Betsy Ashburn. He, they were married for about two or three years. They had two kids and they married for about two or three years. He was a privateer. And if, for people who don't know what a privateer was, it was a pirate who had um, basically a permission to attack enemy ships. So is an American sailor who got a, a permission slip from the Continental Congress saying, I can go attack British warships and merchant ships and raid them. Unfortunately, Joseph Ashburn was captured by the British and thrown into a prison of war camp. And he died shortly before the end of the war. Is that right? Uh, yes. And um, if anyone out here likes love stories, so this, I, even I think this one's kind of cute. Um, so Betsy Ross's third husband, John or Joseph Claypool? John. John Claypool. He was also in this same prisoner of war camp. And I guess he was friends with Joseph Ashburn. And he told, and Ashburn told Claypool, go back to Philadelphia, say hi to my now newly widowed wife, Betsy, and tell her I love her forever, yada, yada, yada. And Claypool goes to Philadelphia, relays the message, falls in love with Betsy, and they um, are married and live happily ever after. Yeah, and have four children. Was it four? I thought he had. They had five. Maybe I think five and one died early. Right. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. Betsy had seven kids altogether. Five of them lived past childhood. Right. So, and that's that's another sad star. Um, fact about her life that I feel like people just kind of laugh at and is like oh only five of her kids survived honestly back then that was pretty good oh yeah some people had 10 and none survived I think she had 17 kids I'm sorry 17 siblings is or was that right she's one of 17 but about if I recall correctly eight died before the age of five yeah and people are probably wondering how that's possible. Medicine and science back then just wasn't as good as it is today. Um, moving on is um, what parts of Betsy's life did you really like to focus on as you during your time as an interpreter? Um, my favorite parts to focus on was her trade. Um, I really loved doing the sewing and I loved talking about it, uh, talking about, you know, why people would be in here, the types of people who would be in here, the fact that she's this middle class working woman, but all of her clients are the wealthiest people in the city. What sort of things would she be learning and hearing from them, though not able to actually socialize with them, I think is really interesting to consider. Um, And I would sometimes take that and teach kids how to sew with me and give them some needle and thread and a bit of cloth. And we'd do some sample stitches together, which was always very fun. (laughs) Um, And yeah, uh, what else did I like to focus on? Sounds like you like you try to focus more on like the social issues, or, like working class 
artisans, specifically working class women in the 18th century, as opposed to Betsy Ross, the mythical flag maker of the yes. Revolutionary War. I honestly avoided discussing that unless I had to, unless there was a group. I mean, I think it's interesting to focus on her as an actual flag maker and actual techniques and why she would want to do that. But I didn't really try to make it this magical patriotic experience. Um, when we reopened after the shutdowns this summer, um, I tried to focus more in on other social issues, even given all the um, Black Lives Matter movements of the summer and thinking more about you know, the Declaration of Independence. So I'm really lucky my time period of Betsy is taking place in the summer of 1776. So right in the midst of all the excitement of, the, of Philadelphia and the Declaration being read aloud. And so I really tried to meditate a lot on like, what would she have thought of that? And as a Quaker, having been raised Quaker, I think she would have been really passionate about um, abolition and things like that. And so mm -hmm. I use her as a vehicle to talk about these hard issues of, yeah, women's issues, um, enslaved and free Africans, um, economic crises, those kinds of things. And I think that's kind of like the mission statement that we've all had at the Betsy Ross house. It's not, it's not just to make it about Betsy Ross, the flag maker. It's really to tell more about social just uh social issues and social social justice for so many people um i was also going to ask just out of curiosity did you ever get any pushback from that from visitors who might have had a different political view or might have wanted to express their own political views or try to like have it took issue <laughs> with what you were saying oh yeah for sure um mostly i get pushback well first of all you get a pretty good you get good at seeing who can I talk about what with. So I think that's a big skill of an interpreter is to know what are people here for? What do I need to say? What do they need to hear? And what is safe for me to say? Um, so, you know, you, you work on that over the course of two years. I kind of finessed that out a lot of times, but certainly I think where I found a lot of the difficulty was just the people who wanted me to just talk about the magic of the flag and I just wasn't buying into it because, and not a, a me thing, but I just don't think Betsy at the stage I interpret her would have thought it as magical. I think maybe by the time she was grandma age, and telling these grandchildren, which is who makes the story legendary, you know, grandmothers are going to talk about things with a different eye, like when I was 24 and meeting George Washington. But when you're 24 and you're in a war and you're getting work done, I think you're seeing it in a really different way. Um, and so I kind of took this mission when I talked about the flag to say like, I'm very proud of what I did, but I don't think I'm particularly alone or unique in this. Many people are making sacrifices. They're changing their business models. The point of the American revolution is for people to come together as one. That is what is so unique about it. All 13 colonies uniting together. It's not about great individuals. It's about the success of 
community. Um, and that I think got the most pushback of just like, but you're the flag, you made the flag. And people just didn't understand that there's really not even a thing of the first American flag. Like there were so many flags. There's 50 flags on a naval ship being flown. Like no one was thinking of it in the way we think of it now. And that they just like can't wrap their minds around and they will like really push you back on that. I know, yeah, I know um, one of the things I tell people is when, because the number one question, uh, there are two questions I got asked all the time when I was working at Betsy Ross house. One was, where's the best place to get a cheesesteak in Philly? And I always mm -hmm. sent them to Sunny's or Campos because they're close by. Mm -hmm. Second one is, did she really make the flag? And what I tell them is that Betsy Ross probably made a prototype or something like that. There's so many prototypes during the Revolutionary War. But like you said, we, do, we know she made a, a flag for the Continental Navy in 1777. We know she was good friends with George Washington from church and also he was a former customer. And like you say, like sewing a flag back then just was not a big deal. It was the equivalent of making one of the first drums or one of the first tents or one of the first uniforms for right. the Continental Army. And I think that's like kind of like the issues with history today is that you have the old school people that want to like mythicize guys like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Abe Lincoln, and people like you and me who are more focused on showing people like what life was like for people, ordinary people in the 18th century and connecting right. some of these social issues like Black Lives Matter, women's rights, so many that were still clearly trying to confront today and mm -hmm. relay them how that was also the case in the 18th century. Yeah, exactly. Did I think you... people fail also to realize in that, like, you're not, when you're making that drum or that uniform or whatever, like, this is a, a act of treason. Like, you're not necessarily mm -hmm. keeping, like, distinct records of all of that. And we, like, expect everyone to, like, have an email chain of everything they ever did and that just isn't it doesn't exist i know in 1777 which is the, i believe it's the year you portray betsy ross is that right or 1776 um both so i take her from june of 1776 to june of 1777 so back then george washington was commanding general of a losing army and the way things are going in 1776 he looked like he's about to be hung for treason by the british Oh, yeah, he is not doing well. <laughs> As is Thomas Jefferson. Or could Betsy Ross have faced punishment if the Americans lost the war? Or is she probably too, too low on the totem pole in the eyes of the British to do anything about? She definitely would have faced punishment if she would have been found. Probably not something as extreme as like hanging, but she definitely would have been fined. Um, so she actually doesn't make the flag in her upholstery shop for that reason she makes it in her bedchamber so she can do it in secret i imagine her business probably would have been confiscated by the british yeah um i would imagine that's more jen's territory but when the british are uh occupying philadelphia i think her business probably was quite different uh let's see uh, what do you think people um, just going back to the social issues, do you think more people related to, um, do you think more people liked your 
like the, the way that we do it, talking about like social issues and betraying ordinary life or anything more people wish for the flag making legend, yada, yada, yada. I think you have both, but I would say the majority of the people are happy to receive what you give them. Mm-hmm. And they're very interested in being able to connect history to their own life and to have the conversation. And I think that's what's so great about interpretation, any first, second, or third, is that you're, ju- you're just talking to people. And it's not a classroom. It's not a lecture. It, they are getting a chance to ask a person from history anything they want to know and see. And I think when you are able to tell them your feeling about something in 1776 and somehow make it applicable to 2020, 2021, um, that's definitely where the magic happens. And I think that's when the people leave with a thoughtful experience that uses the study of history for its best purpose. Um, it's not just meant to be looked at, it's meant to be applied. Yeah, and one of the things I like about working in a museum is that I, I like how so many people say, I hate history. I hated history in high school and college because I had to take all these classes and memorize dates. I think one of the beauties about museums, specifically first person interpretation, is that they, when people get to experience history and look, touch, see, feel, and interact, mm-hmm. I think it just kind of um, just gives people a wide it's like a much more appreciate much more appreciation towards history and i think that's that's why i chose to work in a museum as opposed to becoming a teacher that as well as i don't really like kids that much (laughs) well that's important to know yeah a little did i know is that we get as many as two thousand school kids a day at the betsy ross house so with that can't avoid them Exactly. Yeah, no, but at least now I, I deal with them in short spurts. So it, it minimizes the damage. Yeah. Um, were there any big challenges you had to face or overcome personally or just regards to Betsy Ross or the visitors we had? Anything like that? Um, well, I guess kind of what we talked about and what I mentioned of, you know, people who aren't, who aren't there with an openness to interact. I think in a different way, one of those is um, people who just don't play along, like they don't get that you're interpreting or they don't want to. So you see this a lot with like older teenagers of like, no, you're just fake, like you're an actor and they're not like buying into the illusion which allows you to do your job and it kind of ruins it for everyone else in the room. I mean, everyone else in the room pretty much tries to quiet that person down, but um, that's definitely a challenge to deal with. Um, But, you know, ignoring is a very powerful tool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, we've all gotten really good at that at the Betsy Ross house. Yeah. Um, Yeah, because I think like the the one thing that bothered me the most about Betsy Ross house compared to... um, some of the other sites I worked at, some of the smaller ones like Stenson and Clifton, is that we're a tourist destination. So we get a lot of, most of the visitors we get are at least decent. We definitely get our handful of people that just want to scratch it off the list and don't really, probably there, if anything, is to screw around, take mm-hmm. some selfies and head out. 
Oh think, yeah, they just run through, right through. Um. Yeah, I, I think. How about during school trip season? Was that ever difficult? You know, I actually really like school trip season, and I know it was like the visitor services staff's nightmare season (laughs) um but to me it sometimes was a nice thing because you could go on your three minute betsy script and just like move them through like so i'm an introvert but in a very extroverted job and so those days can be super exhausting talking to hundreds and hundreds of people and having to like carry on as i said I try to make it pretty conversational. So, you know, you're really talking. So it was kind of actually a nice break for me to just fall into like default monologue mode. And I didn't have to think about it, you know? And just hope the guides push them through, um, which sometimes we did. Um, I definitely had good days and bad days. Um, and I definitely, there's sometimes where one of the problems we had is visitor service, you could probably um, relate to this is that we always got a new batch of guides every year. Most of them ended up being very good, but when you get a new batch of guides every year, it's so difficult just to kind of like retrain them. And especially like when you were getting 2000 school kids on your third week on the job, I know there's definitely times where there is like a big line coming like from the, the parlor, which is the first room you enter. And it was just like, no one was moving. Right. One, I think with that, it's not even that it's like an issue on our end, but, you know, it's all those, those groups are from other tour companies and those people have their own expectations for the amount of time it should take and definitely gets stressful for you all. Yeah. I, I, I always hate it when I see, um, like a third, like a, an independent tour guide bring their group in and give like a 10 minute lecture in each room. Cause oh, I can't yeah. really be rude, but I'm just wanting to like, keep moving get the hell in the next room like you, there's 2000 kids like I, I don't i don't have time for this that's my annoyance when those kinds of people come in and then i'm doing whatever i want to talk about and then they are like betsy you forgot to talk about and i'm like look i'm in charge of this room like you can move along i my favorite and this is just a quick story i think you'll like it and um our listeners will like this I don't think it was you. I think it was one of the other, it was one of the previous three um, younger Betsy's. So it was really crowded. So when it's really crowded, we put Betsy Ross outside just so p- people won't get stuck in the upholstery shop. And one of the tour guides who was dressed up as Betsy, as a colonial person, only she was wearing sneakers, uh, came up to me and said, is there another Betsy in the upholstery shop? Um, and I was like, no, she's right outside just to make sure that the line keeps going. And she goes, I'm sorry, that is complete BS. And she did not say what? BS. She said the real, real thing. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. and I was like, um, well, I try to explain to her, her again, it's like, it just to keep the crowd down. And she goes, and I swear I'm not making this up. She goes, we paid $2 a person to go inside the house and talk to Betsy Ross inside her house. And we can't do both. I was like, actually you can do both, just not at the same time. Um, she insisted that I get my supervisor 
and uh, my supervisors, his name's Khan. We both, we all know and love him. He basically, they just, he, I never seen someone try so hard to pretend to listen to somebody, but not obviously not caring at all. So <laughs> that that's the kind of stuff that you and I had to deal with listeners. Oh yeah. The fact that they, they are going into a historic home museum with a live people and they think $2 is too, too many. And no one has any value for what these things actually are. And just to put the, I almost forgot this part, just to put the cherry on top of the, the Sunday, they went across the street to Starbucks and they, I saw them walking out. They oh all had these gosh. like $8 <laughs> Frappuccinos. And that's I was like, hilarious. Yep, yep, that's. That's America. That, that's, that's a life of the Betsy Ross house. <laughs> um, next question is, did you, did you ever break character or wish you could break character during your time at the Betsy Ross house? I don't think I ever broke character. Um, I mean, I definitely said some things that maybe weren't. Well, so here's the funny thing about being in a costume. It actually is an incredibly empowering experience. So you feel like you can actually say to people things you wouldn't say to them in real life because you're safe because you're in this position of power and you're this historic legendary figure speaking to them um so I definitely like said some like like uh I don't know sassier things to men who would make very inappropriate comments to me but I don't I wouldn't consider it breaking character I mean I did it in the context of my character but whether it's totally accurate to something pious 18th century woman would do I don't know we don't have a record of that um but I never like, I think like the most I like actually like broke was, I would say like, yeah, instead of yes. Like if I was like into something to be like, oh yeah. <laughs> like, ah, that's wrong. Um, yeah, cause I know, actually I never knew, I never really noticed about the, oh yeah. I know you, like, you've all said it before and I was like, I just never picked that up. Um, yeah. I know one question you guys were asked all the time, and I always wanted to strangle the people who asked this is, so what year did she die? Oh, and yeah. How would you go about answering that question? I just simply said, as you see, sir, I am not dead yet. So mm -hmm. I cannot answer that. <laughs> and then they're like, wait, what? And I'm just like, and then you just keep moving and keep saying, I'm not dead. I am only 24. You may ask me something about my life at this time. Yeah, I, I, I know sometimes like, I saw what it was, um, I believe it was Carol. Someone asked her the same question. She gave the same response. And their follow-up question is like, no, but seriously, when did she die? And and that that's someone who's basically just doesn't want to play along. Yep. I, I forget how she handled it. I think she said, um, why don't you go ask one of the guy, gentlemen standing outside who happened to be me, that question. Yeah, you can direct them out. I never found that to be particularly effective. I just never knew. It never felt natural to me to say like, well, sometimes I would say, oh, well, the person in the front house may assist you with that. But I don't know, usually that would require them to go back inside and it just never like worked out. But this part of our training to kind of touch back on that is Carol has a list of I don't know, 75, 100 questions 
like most frequently asked questions that you have to like go through and write your responses to. And that is one of them. <laughs> so you come in very prepared for the crazy things people will ask you. Did, um, just out of curiosity, did you only train with Carol or did you train with some of the other Betsy's? Um, we trained with all of them. So Carol was mostly my training for sewing and um, fabrics. And then um, Jen trained me in like the upholstery shop. And then um, I like would, I had to watch her interpretation a lot. And then I had to watch the um, woman who had Betsy before me, um, had to watch her interpretation. And then she would, the booklet is full of all these like sections of questions. So Jen, I worked on things related to the flag, I think with, and then with Lisa, I worked on um, the, the frequently asked questions and the things that pertained more to my specific years of interpretation since that's what she did. Um, so it was evenly distributed. Oh, Lisa, the executive director? No, sorry, uh, at least Annalisa. Uh, oh, okay, Annalisa, yeah. For some reason, I thought you came after Meredith, but like, no, I'm sorry, no, you came, you came after Annalisa, my apologies. Yeah, no. Sorry, I got mixed up. So many Betsy's in my long, illustrious Betsy Ross career. Yeah, I think the major down, or bummer, I guess, when I left the position in September was because of the pandemic and the nature of like my job switch. I didn't get to train the new Betsy at all. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked to her on the phone about some things a bit, but it definitely, she had a totally different training experience. Um, which is... Luckily for her, we, don't, we only get like five people a day during the pandemic, so. Yeah, she's getting a very different experience yeah. all around. Um, Elise, if you're listening to this, you're doing a great job, by the way. Um... You got the shooting the bolt, Tom Snow uh, stamp of approval. So that, that's you're on the you're in the right direction. Um, yeah, but no, she's doing well. Good. I, I think yeah, like Betsy Ross. Every like I don't want to say everybody I work with there was good because there are a few people that I'm sure you can relate to that were difficult to work with um, who had big personalities. But one thing that I always say about Betsy Ross is that we're a very tight knit community. Mm -hmm. Um. I think like we're all a bunch of history nerds where I think we're more all on the introverted side and we're in a job that forces us to be, um, what's the opposite of introvert? Extroverted. Extroverted. <laughs> I was going to say that, but like, is that, was that really what it's called? I was like, yep, it is. <laughs> you got it. You're an English major, right? Yep. Perfect. That, you're my backup. Um, <laughs> so, and also we have to, when you're getting like some, lousy visitors are asking stuff like which one of your husbands was your favorite it's important to kind of um uh vent and um kind of like talk about your co-workers with that oh yeah it's important to have the safe community you can complain to <laughs> uh last question is did you get any real cool skills from being a betsy ross interpreter that you can still use today like sewing or upholstery yeah anything? definitely um I haven't been as much, but I obviously can use my sewing. I actually just used my skills to sew my wedding veil. Oh, nice. It was very similar to doing a slipcase, so it felt very familiar. And uh, 
was fun. So it's I've made a lot of things for my own house. I made curtains and tablecloths and some pillows. Um, masks. There, yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's definitely been a valuable skill. And just generally, I mean, not that it's really cool, but you know, just the public speaking skills you gain doing a job like that and being able to, you know, enter a crowd and manipulate conversation in a way, or not manipulate it, but, you know, move about a conversation. Um, it's an important skill to have. So I definitely utilize it a lot. Yeah, I know personally, I got much better public speaking through um, being a tour guide. And I use that to uh, create a podcast. So which there is... You go. You know, win-win. Uh, last question is a really generic question. What was your favorite part or is your favorite part about being a Betsy Ross first-person interpreter? My favorite part? Um, hmm. Excuse me. No worries. I think, like, my favorite part is just when you make those really great aha moments for people you can see it in their eyes like when they light up and they come in kind of ho-hum and they leave being like wow I really learned something today or I had a good time I laughed I listened <laughs> which we don't do much of these days um I think that was my favorite moment just like really actually having those human connections and feeling like I've made a difference and like inspired somebody today. And you can do that really easily as Betsy with the star. Um, it's a really bewitching thing. And that's a cool skill I do use. I just used it over Christmas and with my four-year-old nephew went around making stars to top our little trees around the house. Um, you know, and people are always amazed by that because it's like a magic trick almost. Um, but even with more in, in, important quote unquote things, I think just seeing them really be excited about uh, something old is, is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like, I think working at any historic site, whether it be, um, yeah, Betsy Ross or Germantown or some of the other jobs we did, I think, I think you can get the same feeling at any working at any historic site, just bringing that history alive and making it relevant to a broad and diverse audience. Yeah, but, exactly. And it's a great privilege to get to be Betsy Ross specifically. She is a household name. People know her, they have expectations and it's, it's an honor to, to be her and embody her. And I learned a lot from her. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, speaking of grateful, Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm sure visit, I think not visitors, listeners learned a lot about who Betsy Ross was and kind of like what it's like, like to be a first person interpreter. So thank you very well, I much. Hope. Thank you for having me. It was fun to talk about it. Awesome. All right. He knows his stuff and sure enough, it's shooting the bull.